Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. Each of the six rooms could be an apartment, or it could be an office space, or it could be, you know, anything in between. And, you know, the six rooms can be combined. It could be the building could be occupied by one tenant or or the six rooms could be six separate tenants. So that sort of idea of, of building in flexibility, that was that was, that was one big challenge. Sure, people can, of course, erect a wall wherever they want to 100 years from now, but to build in that flexibility in a smart and practical way is probably like the best service we as architects could do and speaks to sustainability, right? A building is going to be cherished by future users in the community if it's flexible and demonstrates a smart way of using it. If it can't deliver, then it's inefficient and it's not going to be valued and it's probably going to get torn down, which is not the best result for anyone. This is Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Welcome to RCAT's Detailed, the show where we uncover lessons learned to help you navigate your next project. I am Sharice Lakeside, Senior Spec Writer at RDH Building Science and your host. My guests today are Ben Wechter, Principal Architect, and Alexis Coyer, Project Manager, both from Wechter Architecture in Portland, Oregon. Ben, a native of Eugene, Oregon, is an award-winning and widely published architect whose principles lie in providing bold forms arrived at through exercises in concept, distillation, and intelligent programming. His experience includes a wide range of building types, including cultural, hospitality, commercial, multifamily, and single-family residential. Prior to forming Wechter Architecture in 2008, Ben worked with regional and international leaders in architecture, including Allied Works Architecture in both Portland and New York City, and Renzo Piano Building Workshop in Genoa, Italy. 
Alexis is an alumnus of the University of Michigan, where she earned a Bachelor's of Architecture with distinction, and Harvard University, where she graduated with a Master's of Architecture with distinction. Originally from Detroit, Michigan, Alexis spent her childhood growing up in the arts and architecture community of Cranbrook, where her father was the director of archives. The dichotomy of city to campus strongly shaped her relationship to architecture and the built environment. Before joining Wechter, she worked at multiple firms, including Ply Architecture in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Marble Fairbanks, ANI, and Frederick Tang Architecture in New York City. The project we're going to chat about today is the Mississippi Workshop in Portland, Oregon. Mississippi Workshop is a mixed-use, mass timber building located on a prominent commercial avenue in Portland, and it's called, yep, you guessed it, Mississippi Avenue best street fair in the city on Mississippi Avenue, by the way, if you ever visit our city. The building is the home of Wechter Architecture and was designed, developed, and built by the firm. They saw the project as a proving ground for sustainable building systems and all wood construction technologies, and as a forum for new creative conversations. But before we get started, don't forget to take a look at the project photos and drawings as you listen along. You can click on the link in our show notes or visit www.rcat.com slash podcast. Located on a prominent site in Portland's vibrant Mississippi Avenue district, this 9,555 square foot building strikes a balance between individuality and community, flexibility, and permeance, offering a new model for sustainable and sensitive infill development. Mississippi Workshop is the result of over 10 years of planning and investigation. We physically needed an office. We wanted to have our own office. So that was the first part of it. The specifics about the building really came about through what we call our overarching project in our office, which is this idea of clarity, trying to have more experiential clarity within our work. And we wanted this building, this is, it was our opportunity to really design a building in a place with as much experiential clarity as possible. And we've achieved clarity in, in a lot of our projects in many ways, but we've never really been able to achieve a constructional clarity in a, in at least in as a pure a way as, as we, had hoped or aspired to. And so we saw this as an opportunity to, to do that. And we, we looked at a bunch of different materials to begin with, but the idea was to decide on a material that would be in some way primitive. So, so what's a simpler way of building? What's a way of putting a wall assembly together that's, that's not 20 different layers? We actually first look at concrete. So looking at exotic concrete formulas that, that could be structural, but also insulative, and also the finish. But when we got further along in the process and really got serious about it, we realized that concrete was not the right solution because of its carbon footprint. And, and so that's when we started thinking seriously about mass timber. And we really like mass timber for its environmental properties, but also we liked the fact that, in theory, we could make a building that was 100% one material, mass timber. 
and so so that was really the the start to the project from a material perspective is how can we make a building that's really made up of only a few things during construction a lot of things came up where we had to make like very quick decisions change our expectations i think the expectations for the building evolved in a really healthy way during construction where we realized just because of the material properties and the fact that like no one had used mass timber quite this way definitely in this region we started to look at the building as more of something of a, a tool to learn from and also like Ben mentioned to evolve our thinking so in a way we were really lucky to be the own clients because you know you you never want to use a client in a kind of exploratory fashion right like you have a duty to the client as an architect that's very serious and we certainly had a duty to this building and ourselves in a way because we were on the clients it was more of a a process of learning from ourselves and from the building in a way that allows us to learn from it and then apply it to future projects whether they be like private clients developers etc so the building is a fantastic tool for the office, and it turned out also beautifully, which is an added bonus. With the principles of economy, constructability, and agility serving as key drivers, the organization of the building creates distinct zones for programs and services. Probably the easiest way to understand the building is, on one hand, it is made of a singular material, mass timber. And then on the other hand, from a composition point of view, it's a very simple floor plan and layout. It's essentially six rooms, six large rooms that are 30 feet wide by 50 feet long, more like a loft. It's a three-story building. So there's three rooms along Mississippi Avenue, the commercial street. And then there are three rooms opposite that on the residential side. There's also an alley. So it's along the alley. And then between the three rooms on Mississippi and the three rooms on the alley is a courtyard. And the courtyard is essentially the arrival point or the living room of the building. On Mississippi, there, there are no doors <laughs> to the buildings. There's a single portal that you pass through to get to the courtyard. And so you arrive at the courtyard first, and then from the courtyard, you enter the building. Currently, we have a coffee shop on the ground floor on the Mississippi side. And then opposite that, we have what we call our workshop. And we do seminars and workshops in that space. The second floor on both sides is our office. So we have a, a meeting site on the Mississippi side. And then our, our desks and, and workspace is on the alley side. And then I, I think, I guess I didn't mention it before, but the, the six rooms are connected with a, a hallway. So the, the, the building essentially is, it's a U-shaped form that creates this courtyard so that the six rooms are connected by a hallway that has the stair and the elevator along the hallway. And then on the third floor is my apartment. So I live here too. So it's, it's, it's the building is a lot of things. With that said, it, it, it's been designed so that the six rooms can actually be anything. So they've all been roughed in from a plumbing and electrical perspective to be any use really. So they've they've been outfitted so they can each of the six rooms could be an apartment or each of the six rooms could be an office space or 
or on the ground floor, they could be retail. And the idea is to to, to really future-proof the building so that it can evolve over time depending you know, on future needs. And so, you know, with that in mind, there was this idea of, you know, building out of the singular material, the mass timber, which is in some ways inflexible, but from a composition point of view, from a planning, from a floor plan point of view, to, to make it ultimately flexible. So to be able to really harness the, the benefits, the sort of character benefits of the mass timber with the flexibility of the floor plan. At the heart of the building, an open-air courtyard acts as a semi-private civic space, or pocket park, offering a retreat from the busy street and a venue for diverse events, presentations, and informal gatherings. Other than a facade of weathering steel and radiant concrete flooring, all surfaces within the building are exposed wood without the need for additional finishes or fireproofing. Our biggest challenge was to build in flexibility with a material that's by its nature inflexible. <laughs> and I spoke to this earlier, but really with this idea of the six rooms, trying to build in a genericness to, to the project, genericness in a good way. So the building itself, because it's built out of mass timber, has a strong character, but to make these spaces generic in the in a flexible way that was our goal and and the challenge and so from a technical perspective you know how how to outfit or how to rough in these six rooms so that they could really be a lot of things it, it, they can't be everything in the future but how can they be a lot of things in the future so each of the rooms is outfitted or roughed in to have a kitchen and to have a bathroom so each of the six rooms could be an apartment or it could be an office space or it could be you know anything in between and you know the six rooms can be combined it could be the building could be occupied by one tenant or or the six rooms could be six separate tenants so that sort of idea of of building in flexibility that was that would that was one big challenge yeah and to add to that so like the process by which we did that for example was like doing potential layouts, let's say we want what's an open office to be a residence. We have to lay out the rooms, you have to assume where the doors are going, then you have to place all the outlets because remember they're in the floors and there's like code to how many outlets you need, how far from doorways. So when you look at our office slab now, you'll see a lot of outlets that are like two boxes a foot apart, which is actually great because it's more area to plug into. But that's future proofing in case a wall goes down. Also, since the floors carry, the, the concrete slabs carry so many of our services, including hydronics, you can imagine you don't want people drilling down into the floor willy nilly to place like base plates for stud walls. So we actually have these metal embeds within the concrete at a certain distance from each other at like in certain layouts where hypothetically you would put walls. So you would basically screw your sill plate in where those embeds are located. And that's another way to future-proof in a building where you do have to be because everything that's a mass and physical in the building is carrying so much that you really have to anticipate 
where that flexibility needs to be, right? And that's like, I mean, that's a part of architecture in every building. Sure, people can, of course, erect a wall wherever they want to 100 years from now, but to build in that flexibility in a smart and practical way is probably like the best service we as architects could do and speaks to sustainability, right? A building is going to be cherished by future users in the community if it's flexible and demonstrates a smart way of using it. If it can't deliver, then it's inefficient and it's not going to be valued and it's probably going to get torn down, which is not the best result for anyone. Mississippi Workshop is the first commercial project in Oregon to use mass timber for all components of the building structure and spatial definition. Permitting is always challenging. I think in our case, I mean, it is the first all mass timber building, all mass timber meaning that the lateral system, it's it's utilizing CLT as a lateral system. And so it's the first one to be permitted through the city of Portland. So you would think it would be extra challenging. And, and maybe in some ways it was, I think, to the city's credit, the structural reviewers at BDS really stepped up. And, and I remember first project this has happened on, for me at least, having special meetings with the city engineers and, and our engineers at KPFF. And they were really behind it. And so I think it was new, but to the city's credit, they, they really helped us get it through the system. The building was permitted underneath the 2017 Oregon Structural Code. So this is before the IBC and an Oregon adopted the Type 4 category, for, which is for tall buildings, but there's other language in the code now that's specific to mass timber. We permit it as a Type 5B, but we still do need rated walls at the zero lot line conditions. We abut two other properties right on the property line. And for egress stair and for the elevator shaft and mechanical shafts, just your, your typical vertical shaft conditions. And also, since we do have mixed-use occupancy between the business and the residential. So per the code, as many architects know, you typically use sheetrock. And then where you have your joints, you are required to put like fire caulking. So like the first step, which was easy, is that CLT has a char layer. And, you know, there's a technical report that we put right in the permit set and the structural engineer oversized the members that needed to be fire rated. And that was fine. The issue came with the joints and the caulking. So for various reasons to get the permit through, (laughs) we did show caulking in our details. And this is a lesson learned is that just the way the building was erected, there's no way that the construction team was going to be able to put all these lines of caulk between these 45-foot half-lap spandrels or anywhere else. So it just didn't go in. It was noticed during inspection. And the plans examiner, who was great and who I became <laughs> like on first-name basis with, was sympathetic, but he said, you know, the code says we need caulk. I understand your argument, but, you know, we need to show something. So we engaged a fire engineer to write a judgment. And the judgment was that not only does CLT and wood structural members in general not need additional fire caulking, it actually could 
proved to be detrimental to their natural their natural fire retardant qualities. And that was a big kind of like pivot moment. So the city accepted it. It's now in the system if anyone wants to reference that. But that was that was a big deal because the CLT, the building was basically up and we hadn't really caulked anything. And we did try to actually go back and like run some fire caulking. It just didn't stick to the wood. So in terms of code and the city and just the engineers that worked on the building, that was potential pitfall that ended up being great. And now we can apply that engineering judgment towards future buildings and also to the industry in general, because you don't, you didn't see that kind of like depth of research into caulking and sealants in CLT buildings before. Every decision from the building's simple and clear organization to the integration of healthy materials and efficient building systems, such as all-electric, refrigerant-free, hydronic heating and cooling systems, embodies the principles of resilience and enduring design. Our approach was to choose materials. One, you know, well, the mass timber, sourcing it from a sustainably harvested forest, that, that was important to us. And then beyond the mass timber, to choose materials that would age gracefully so they didn't have to be replaced. And for the concrete floors, along with being sort of a good thermal mass for our hydronic system, it's also a floor that can take a lot of wear and last for a very long time. On the outside of the building, we used weathering steel so that the first day wasn't its best day. It'll just continue to to get better over time, and we don't have to worry about repainting it in thirty or twenty years. <laughs> um, so we we made choices like that. We wanted a tight envelope, and this the CLT. It's it was basically constructed as a balloon frame, or I I, I like to think of it as as a tilt up, so almost like a a concrete tilt-up structure, so the the wall panels go from they go 45 feet from foundation to the parapet as a single piece, and those single pieces are then joined through a half lap one to another, and and the half lap, as we've found, creates a really tight fit, so that there's very little air leakage through the wall assembly. We used Cascadia windows, which are a fiberglass windows, a high efficient high efficiency window, and then they're you know well sealed. The envelope is it's a, it's simple, but it's a very energy efficient envelope. You know the other part to this from a sustainability point of view is the hydronic system. So going all electric and choosing it was more expensive, but choosing the most energy efficient heating and cooling system available right now. And so that's why we we wanted to pursue a heat pump that could, could both heat the building and cool it hydronically. So if you look at an elevation of the building, we have these kind of datums and a, a grid of windows that each of the windows is fairly large by themselves. They're about three foot three by six foot three, maybe six foot four. But we didn't do the kind of like storefront glazing 
that's consistent with a lot of contemporary development. Every floor has these kind of punched windows. The reason for that being, I mean, we do have in the office a way of kind of ordering the facade that speaks to like the clarity that Ben was mentioning earlier. This one would be a kind of gridded datum approach. So part of it was, I think, the reality of, like Ben mentioned, the CLT panels that span from the foundation all the way up to the parapet. So you need a continuous vertical plane. And then in between those, they act essentially as columns. In between those is where we put our windows. And then between the floors where the windows are and between the columns with these spandrels that with a half lap connection, tie those panels together and the whole building acts as a rigid frame. So we have these punch windows that relate to this is going to get a little technical, but so we're on the alley on the back, as Ben mentioned, the alley is only 10 feet wide. There's residences, single family houses on the other side. So we have a fire separation distance. So we only could have a certain amount of openings on that back facade. So the back facade on the alley has the maximum openings. And we've carried that language all the way around the building. And in a way, it's really unusual for a multi mixed-use building in Portland to have these punch windows that almost look like residential windows. The thing that's amazing is they're like every other one is operable because they're the scale, they're they're awning windows. And then because of the courtyard, we have operable windows on really five faces of the building. So it's three faces of the courtyard and the east and west wing on the roads. We get great air movement through the structure. We don't have too much glazing, right? Because glazing is always where you get the most load from. The courtyard itself actually like works as a, a chimney. So in the summer, it's actually noticeably cooler than the surrounding streets. So there's also not just the systems and the materials, but the design of the building itself and the way that the users can actually actively influence, you know, air control and other things is it's pretty amazing how good the building feels. I think and a lot of it has to do with the fenestration and the courtyard and also of course the slab cooling and heating which gives you that like ambient heat temperature or heating and cooling that's so much more comfortable for humans than just like air constantly flowing over you. So this building has a lot of things going for it in terms of different realms of sustainability. Now to dig into the unique part of the story. This team of architects took on the build of Mississippi Workshop themselves. To start off with, we have tremendous respect for builders. And I think uh, building our own project only reinforced that. (laughs) The benefit of it is that we didn't have to make all the decisions from day one. And so the, for better or worse, you know, the building evolved as, as we were constructing it. And making choices along the way, and we learned, you know, we learned a, a tr- tremendous amount by doing it. So, the, so really, the the good thing that came out of the whole thing was just deepening our understanding and and respect for really what goes into making a building, and then also reinforcing sort of our belief that simpler is better. So, what's the elegant solution? What's the simplest way to do it? Yeah. And as the acting project lead during construction, 
there was a lot more involvement, a lot closer involvement, obviously, because we didn't implement the the standard submittal process in-house because there wasn't really the need for that formality like a typical project under construction. So I think there were pros and cons to it. It was a pro in as much as what Ben described, where we were able to pivot quite quickly and be flexible. But on the other hand, it did allow us to maybe push some decisions a little bit later than would be typically made. I have also the builders certainly a lot of respect for the consultants and the subs that were working on the project. Specifically, like we had a great lead electrician who was just so mindful because you you really are demanding more of those subs. And none of them really understood, I don't think, the totality of a mass timber building and what we were asking for when they first signed on. I don't think it hit home that you couldn't just rely on a shaft wall to place conduit, for example. Everything not only had an architectural impact in terms of visibility, but had a structural impact. So you couldn't have the folks on site just making rough cuts everywhere. Like the level of coordination was extremely high. And for that, maybe there was a benefit to us self-acting just because we didn't have that that removed step of needing to go through another company acting as GC. The process was much more communicative on site as opposed to a paper trail, which I think would have just been a mountain administrative paperwork that probably would have drowned in. They learned a lot through the process of managing the construction. The mass timber, because it came as a prefabricated kit of parts, the mass timber went together really smoothly, more smoothly than I thought it would. Uh, In fact, I think the real challenge was connecting this huge kit of parts to the foundation. If I was to, to isolate one thing, that was probably the hardest part. You know, one thing that we would do differently next time. So we have steel hold downs that connect the mass timber to the foundation. And we had a separate subcontractor installing the steel hold downs from the contractor who was putting in the mass timber. And I think if we were to do it next time, we would have the CLT installer also install the hold downs, which they are certainly capable of doing. And just because they're so like integrally connected and if the hold down is not placed correctly, it, it, it messes up all of the CLT installation. And so that was that was sort of a big learning lesson. I think how these hold downs are designed, we would probably do differently next time. I mean, they look great, but I think there would be easier ways to install the the hold down to the concrete and and similarly easier ways for the the CLT to connect to the hold down. I mean, <laughs> there's a couple of my favorites when Ben mentioned the seasonal changes that happen in Portland and construction and tenting. So typically, you know, you, you see tenting happen, not just on all wood buildings, but you certainly have seen another CLT hybrid buildings in the city. And I think Ben's talked to this before. We were perhaps overly optimistic about construction timeline, but also 
about the the false promise of a, a dry Portland winter, and it turned out being like one of the wettest. <laughs> and we had issues with like breaching of like an initial roof membrane, um, et cetera. So the, the wood was completely exposed to changes of temperature and moisture and full on snow and water. Luckily, there were no detrimental impacts to the wood. It, it gets wet, it dries out, life continues. We were maybe lucky in that sense, or that's just like the natural proclivity of the material, but there were setbacks definitely because we didn't anticipate like the impact of weather. And I think that goes to Ben's comment about we interact with builders a lot but we are not builders. And the biggest challenge was probably just like scheduling things, scheduling subcontractors. And I, in the office, wasn't responsible for that, but I was very closely seeing that process. And I think that would be another thing that would change. Aside from just like general details and other things was just like scheduling and communicating to subconsultants when they would be needed. I, I do think that that was a kind of like push and pull area of the project that probably a professional builder would understand to look out for that caught us a little bit flat-footed at times. There were several conditions to address in this build. The walls are a five-ply CLT, so it's approximately six inches thick. So that's the primary component for the wall. And that's what's seen from the inside. On the outside of that, the next layer is the, the WRB or the, the weather barrier. And then we have four inches of rock wool for additional insulation. And then we have the weathering steel. And that's it. So really just these three three components to the wall assembly. And the floors, of course, are CLT. The glue lamb beams, it's a columnless structure. So the glue lamb beams span the the short length of these six rooms that I was describing before. So 30 feet. And the stair was completely prefabricated in the factory with the same species of wood. And then our elevator shaft is, is also CLT. So really everything is CLT except for this rain jacket that you described on the outside of the building, our windows, <laughs> and then our, <laughs> our roof. And then as one like additive we had, we do have concrete topping slabs as the finished floor. And when this building has been published and there is the descriptor of all wood, there have been people who have been very quick to point out, but wait, you have concrete floors, point out that they are only finished. They're not structural at all. And within those concrete topping slabs, Aside from obviously the slab on grade and the foundations, that's obviously concrete. But on the second and third floors, they're finish topping slabs, not structural at all. And they have the hydronic mechanical system and all of the electrical within them. So that's the horizontal distribution of our services. But they are not structural. So yes, the building is all wood. Yeah. And I just to add on to the floors, the floors are a really important component to this in some ways a complement to the body of the building so the body of the building is is the mass timber and along with all of the the positive qualities of mass timber that the challenge with mass timber is that there's no cavity so there's no places to run electrical plumbing as you 
would typically do in a, a framed construction. And so we really leaned heavily on this topping slab. So the, the, the topping slab is doing a tremendous amount of work. It's providing the heating and cooling. So the building, it's all electric. And we have air to water source heat pumps on the roof that are either heating water or cooling water. Uh, it's a summertime right now, so it's it's in the cooling mode and it's sending cold water into the slab, cooling the space. The slab is also how we run conduit for electrical and data. And so so all of the electrical and data are are in floor boxes within the concrete slab. So the concrete slab is really relieving the body of the building from moving this stuff around. We we also, you know, through the use of the hydronic system, we don't have any ductwork in the spaces. So the, the spaces are really purely about the material, the mass timber, spruce in our case, and then and then the spatial definition of the room. Another notable consideration is weatherproofing. For the Mississippi workshop, the team utilized a product that they informally refer to as frog skin. It is a self-adhered weather barrier called Shield SA, made by VaporShield. We use the self-adhered membrane called frog skin, and it's specifically for mass timber. So it, it's, it's a breathable membrane. So mentioning about the wood getting wet and then drying out, we have had instances of a water penetration after, like post-occupancy, like within the past year. And it's amazing because you can see immediately like when the roof leaks. <laughs> so it's not like a surprise down the road. But what's amazing is that the wood just dries out and it can dry from both sides. It can dry to the inside. It can also dry, dry through this frog skin to the outside. That was the biggest takeaway in terms of like specifications for me. Yeah. And, and well, during construction, so we, we went into the project overly optimistic about schedule and weather. And so we didn't budget for any temporary weather protection. And we ended up adding that. So we ended up building a temporary roof over each section of the the building we we reused it so we built we built a temporary roof over the mississippi side and then once the mississippi side had its roof permanent roof installed with the crane we lifted the temporary roof over to the east side and installed the roof underneath the temporary roof there so i think understanding the importance of investing in temporary weather protection is it's a real thing and something that if we were to do it again, we'd uh, take more seriously. <laughs> we learned our lessons several times. <laughs> One of the biggest challenges that arose in the project came down to coordination. Isn't that where all the biggest challenges come out? For me, it was really the coordination that needs to happen in a building like this, especially for the project manager or the lead architect. Is And this partially put more pressure on the construction, but not coordinating as many of the systems completely beforehand because of the nature of the project, because of honestly, like the way permitting works in Portland, that not you can defer many things. That's a big difference from the East Coast. <laughs> so it works great in some ways, but that was very challenging with the mass timber. And luckily it all, everything made it in, but 
not only coordinating with the subs and the trades ahead of time, but coordinating with the person who's going to be erecting your CLT. We didn't start coordination with a lot of those additional players until like CA kickoff more or when we were truly like sourcing the wood and trying to find the main CLT erector and changes occurred that then had to be tracked back through permitting, which for me was one of the biggest challenges, just like tracking all those permit changes and making sure it happened in a timely fashion for the rolling inspections. So I think definitely like one big takeaway for us is just shifting coordination earlier in a project phase instead of during CDs or, you know, as you're getting into CA, kind of even starting to think about that in in the schematic phase or definitely the design development phase and getting ahead of those issues. This venture to extend beyond design and explore development and construction created invaluable lessons and experience for the team at Wector Architecture. You know, the next all mass timber or all wood building that we do, there are things we'll do differently. Specifically, how we approach running mechanical systems would probably do that different. There's some particular details about how we connect the mass timber to the foundation that we would do differently. The building really went up smoothly and efficiently. The The mass timber part of it, it was every component was pre-manufactured in the factory you know, down to the holes in the glue lamb beams for the sprinklers to all the mechanical penetration. So everything was pre-cut, pre-tooled in the factory. And and that all actually went, it went together really smoothly. The challenge was connecting that kit of parts to the foundation. And so, you know, that part we would, we've learned a lot and would would do that differently. Like, you know, I, I moved here from the East, from New York about five years ago. And there's at least in my experience, much more of a disconnect between architect and builder, at least where I practice on the East Coast. So there was this push to like detail everything because that's the conversation you're going to have here. And here in Portland, my experience has been more along lines of kind of what you mentioned, the master builder, but this idea that like, it's okay, you don't know what you don't know. So you put down a paper what you do know, obviously you dot your I's and cross your T's and there's like the legality of the documents. But there's also the ability to have a conversation with people on site. So let's not draw something just because it's a shot in the dark and we think we need to get something down. Let's draw what we know and then lean on the experience of people who are actually in the field doing this and respect what they have to say. And so I think that was a big part of it too, is like not overcomplicating our drawing sets, either simplicity of detail, simplicity of drawing sets, and simplicity of communication all go into delivering a successful building. So that was another part of the learning process for me, especially coming from the East Coast, where it's a little bit of a different scene. Before we close out this episode, I like to gain some additional insight from our guests about the greater industry. After being the designer, developer, and builder for Mississippi Workshop, I was curious if Ben and Alexis saw the old approach of the master builder making a resurgence. I think we're definitely moving towards a more collaborative environment. I would say on all of our projects, all of our projects have have robust pre-construction arrangements you know, between ourselves and the builders and the owners. And I think when I started out, that wasn't 
always the case. And, and in fact, that might have been a rarity. You know, it used to be, you know, design build, and and so I do think, for us at least, we like to be experts at designing and you know being the best architects that we can. So I think for us, we don't envision be getting into the construction business. We have an enormous respect for builders and an enormous appreciation for collaboration and starting that collaboration as early as possible in a project, in the design of a project, to bring in all of everybody's unique perspectives and insights into putting a building together. I see that as a really positive thing for the industry, this this sort of collaborative nature that seems to be becoming more and more popular. And that is truly something I'm hearing about a lot. Just I'm hearing more and more and more about, you know, whole teams coming on way earlier. I hear a lot of people say, can't afford to do that. You save so much down the road. You can't afford not to is my response to that question. Yeah. It's short-term thinking to think that I can't afford to bring these people on early if you're not looking to where you're going to lose the most money which is when? During construction. Because mm-hmm. that's when every little thing that you didn't coordinate or didn't collaborate on is going to rear its ugly head. How about you, Alexis? What do you think our, our future looks like in this arena? I have no idea how to answer that question <laughs> at all. I will say I agree with Ben's statement. Personally, I think that the role of an architect has always expanded, contracted, and I think there's a look to expanding it as a, you know, to place ourselves maybe more centrally into certain conversations and certain kinds of work. And I'm more of a traditional architect. I think we do what we do well. And part of that is collaboration and coordination. And I don't necessarily see the like added benefit of us also becoming builders and developers. I think some firms do it quite well. But I would question whether or not that's an appropriate shift for the profession at large. I had a lot of fun talking to Ben and Alexis. I hope this episode sparks a new idea, helps you solve a problem that you've been working through, or inspires the mark that you want to leave in this world on your path to world domination. When I was younger, I had great aspirations about you know saving cities through architecture and like this kind of you know like hero complex but idea of like the hero and i think as i definitely get older and and in more managerial roles i think i started to look at it at a much finer scale the difference i can make is with the people i work with every day so whether or not that be ben or the designers or builders or clients is just take care with each interaction and each individual and kind of like just working at a smaller scale. And I think that kind of ripples out and could have more of an impact than I think we realize. I guess I would answer that relative to the to our studio. And, and one thing that really motivates me in the work that we do is it's not novelty based it's really refinement based and so i mentioned earlier earlier on we have this overarching 
project. So we have all of our regular projects, but we have this sort of office-wide ongoing, it'll never end project that we, we sometimes call our clarity project. But it's essentially this idea of how to design and build places that have experiential clarity. And so as an office, it's this sort of, it's a shared goal of getting better at doing that and, and really understanding techniques and ways of, of getting closer to it. I mean, for me, that's a big motivator that it's this, it's a thing that's outside of all of us, but we're working together on it. And it's something that's evolving and, and really getting better, you know, every year. And so that's, that's a very satisfying thing for me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. For over 30 years, RCAT has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try RCAT and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.